Hello, and welcome to Addiction Practice Pod. I'm Dr. Lindsay Mackay. And I'm David Ball. This is the podcast of the BC Echo on Substance Use, about substance use care and treatment. Addiction Practice Pod is produced on the unceded traditional territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. In saying this, we note that the ongoing criminalization, discrimination, and institutionalization against people who use drugs disproportionately harms Indigenous people. Ending drug-related harms means ending racism and colonialism. I'm a family physician and addiction medicine specialist who provides care for people who use substances in the downtown east side at Portland Hotel Society and for Vancouver Coastal Health. I also work as a researcher and my focus is studying how we can use psychedelics to treat problematic substance use. It's great to be here with you, Lindsay. I'm a journalist and have reported for a decade about substance use, public health policies and mental health. As return listeners already know, this is a podcast for healthcare providers. We'll hear from clinicians, policymakers, and people with lived experience on approaches to substance use care that work. Evidence-based treatments often focus on a specific type of substance, like opioids or stimulants. However, many people have more than one substance that they use frequently. In this episode, we're talking to Dr. Lorraine Greaves about co-occurring substance use. Dr. Lorraine Greaves is a medical sociologist and clinical professor at the UBC School of Population and Public Health. Dr. Greaves also has a research focus on sex and gender related to substance use. As such, we're going to be asking specific questions about sex and gender alongside polysubstance use today. We'll also hear from Sean, who has lived experience both with polysubstance use and harm reduction. Can you speak to us a little bit about the work that you do? Yes, I'm actually the senior investigator at the Center of Excellence for Women's Health, and we're affiliated with BC Women's Hospital, but we are a national and in some cases, international resource for looking at sex and gender and various women's health issues, actually. But we have a very huge emphasis on substance use. And so we do a huge amount of work in two broad areas. One is encouraging more sex and gender science in research and all the ramifications that come from increasing the evidence around sex and gender and substance use, which include improved clinical practice, changes to policies sometimes, changes to programs, and of course, increased health literacy for individuals as well about how substances affect males and females differently and how policies and programs might affect men, women, boys, girls, gender diverse people differently. So we do a lot of work in those areas. And of course we do come across uh, a lot of co-substance use or polysubstance use in our work. We also look at secondary analyses of other people's survey results, for example, or other people's research. Because what we often find still is that a lot of people still do research or still do survey and survey analyses 
without considering the full spectrum of sex and gender characteristics. So could you break down some of the ways that sex and gender bear relevance when discussing co-occurring substance use disorders? Gender affects how often, how much you might use something, what situations you might use it in, whether or not you're pressured to use, whether or not you have access in the same way as others, whether or not you're uh, potentially doing things like driving while impaired, which is very much a male phenomenon, or conversely, whether or not you're riding with somebody who is driving while impaired, which surprisingly is also a male phenomenon. So you can begin to see when you ask certain questions around gender and access and roles, gender roles, gender relations has an effect in terms of coercion. With respect to co-occurring or polyuse, the one thing that is consistently overlooked in substance use research is the co-use with tobacco, which is the most dominant So it's nicotine plus alcohol, nicotine plus cannabis, nicotine plus opioids. All of these patterns emerge over and over and over again. And I've spent a lot of years studying tobacco and nicotine, again, from a sex and gender perspective. And it's always interesting to me how the substance use field forgets to consider the impacts. And it makes a real difference, um, not just in terms of what people are doing and what happens uh, to them. There's loads and loads of questions. Yeah. So Dr. Greaves, this is such important and interesting work. I'm wondering, do you have any practical tips for care providers on how to integrate sex and gender informed evidence into their practice? There are growing resources that are built for clinicians actually around these issues. So in our case, we produce some at our center because our remit is to bring evidence to practice. So we don't just do the research side or the secondary analyses, but we produce a lot of resources. So, and we try to make them as friendly as possible. So for example, we produce three pagers on alcohol and sex differences or sex-related factors and gender-related factors that a clinician could read in four minutes at the most. And those things give ideas. We also do training. And as I say, it's not just us. I think there's finally uh, a bit of an awakening uh, among clinicians and the bodies that represent them and provide training and education that these issues matter. What I would say to clinicians is that always ask about issues around sources of substances. Always ask about nicotine use. Always ask about coercion. Always ask about context of use, whether it's alone or with people always ask much deeper questions. Bear in mind the complexities and the interactions between sex and gender. There's a lot there for clinicians to grapple with, not just in terms of their own attitudes, and that that often is the place to start, to be honest, but also in terms of understanding the impact of stigma on their patients. One of the other things that we've promoted over the years is the use of trauma-informed approaches. So really trying to get at not forcing disclosures 
of past trauma. That's not what trauma-informed means, but rather understanding that if you take a trauma-informed approach to your patient, then you will allow and create a safe space for making choices and you'll collaborate, not impose, and you will build on strengths. And building on strengths can be done very effectively in our view through the use of techniques like motivational interviewing, for example. So if someone is willing to make a tiny change or has already make it, made a tiny change, then that gets built upon. Could you say more about what motivational interviewing is? That's interesting. Sure. So we've actually produced some resources where we offer scripts to clinicians or providers. So instead of being authoritative and imposing issues like abstinence, obviously we encourage harm reduction in the context, but we might say, let's take an example of say a young mother or father, a parent who has a one-year-old that they can't leave alone, but they also use substances. Could be anything from uh, smoking cannabis to something else, anything, drinking. So in those circumstances, a motivational interview would ask, well, what small steps have you taken to combine your parenting responsibilities with your substance use? And a person may say something like, oh, well, you know, I only smoke joints after the child is in bed. The clinician would say, that's great. How can we extend that? Have you thought about maybe the impact of getting high while you're still responsible for a child? Have you thought about what you could do to mitigate that? And you could see you begin to get into a very positive conversation using motivational interviewing techniques where you're reinforcing the person's steps reinforcing strengths. In other words, they've already figured out one thing they could do to reduce exposure to smoke in that context. And maybe you can encourage them on the next step. How, how could they mitigate the impact of being high while still being responsible? And at the same time, build a trusting relationship with that patient to say, look, you know, I'm willing to work with you here. I respect that you're thinking about these things. And I respect that you're trying to figure out how to reduce harm in your life to yourself and to others that matter to you. That's a really good start where you mention that you're working together, that's collaborative. You imply it's a safe space because you're willing to listen to this and you're working on solutions that are strengths-based together. I'm wondering if you can speak to how polysubstance use may have impact on the treatment for specific substance use disorders. Well, first and foremost, as I've said, it's often not measured fully. We did a lot of work a couple of years ago. We worked with providers in every province and every jurisdiction in Canada to talk about how to integrate sex and gender into and trauma actually into their practices and programming and treatment responses. And without exception, we were talking to treatment providers and programmers that 
excluded nicotine dependence from their work. So that's step one, because as I mentioned earlier, nicotine use is confounding and adding to many of the health impacts and is one of the poly substances we need to measure and note and treat. A lot of providers were still in that really old school framework where they said, oh dear, you know, my patients who are in residential care with AUD, for example, or, you know, heroin dependence or cocaine dependence, I'm not going to take their nicotine away from them. That's all they have, which is to me irresponsible. It is inequitable in that because of a preconceived idea by healthcare practitioners and treatment planners, it doesn't offer those patients an equal opportunity to be healthy. And that is still an issue. It's less of an issue than it was 20 years ago, but it's still an issue. Clinicians need to integrate trauma, awareness of trauma a lot more and a lot differently. So actively creating programs that are trauma-informed. This is not about disclosure. It doesn't mean that the treatment has to get into disclosure and processing of trauma, but it means that the setting and the approach has to be, as I mentioned earlier, collaborative, strengths-based, giving choices, because only in these ways can harm reduction be fully realized and equitable outcomes be fully realized. And without that, I think lots of programming for polysubstance use or single use can drive people away or make them more defended or have them feel re-stigmatized. So I do think becoming trauma-informed, building on strengths, motivational interviewing, which builds on strengths and builds on small steps, as well as a much more robust gendered approach, which would allow treatment providers to understand, number one, there are sex differences we need to look at here in terms of dosage and in terms of uh, clearance rates, in terms of damage that we need to be informed about and be able to share. But number two, there are gendered contexts for both men, women, gender diverse people. There are specific contexts for people who are non-heterosexual, just largely, that exacerbate or reduce the impact of a substance or exposure or access Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Graves, and for sharing so much of your research with our listeners. Thank you for having me. It's been great to have this conversation with you. That was Dr. Lorraine Greaves, a clinical professor at the UBC School of Population and Public Health and a senior investigator at the Center of Excellence for Women's Health. And finally today, we'll be hearing from Sean. Sean works in harm reduction and has faced many of the barriers and challenges associated with substance use, both personally and professionally.
name is Sean Wood. I'm 14 John, BC, right currently. I'm indigenous from Good Fish Lake Lac, Bush area, Alberta, but I live in BC. So I've been doing harm reduction and outreach and that. We see stuff for going on, well, officially for four or five years now. Before that, it was just on my own accord kind of deal. I didn't really know there was a name to what I was doing. Uh, introduction from a friend of a friend actually asked me if I wanted to meet these people about four years ago. CIE, I believe it was. Some people from there were coming up here to Fort St. John. We were already doing some outreach and stuff in town. And it's being a snowfather, I had to figure out another line of work, really. My career just kind of exploded. It was, it was kind of funny, though, for a minute. Lifetime lived experience really a substance user since I was about 16. 41 now. Cost me about upwards around 11 years of incarceration. Um, and mostly stimulants, well, all stimulants actually, my whole life. And I'm not too sure why I only stayed with that. I haven't had a doctor in four years because I spoke to a doctor about it. I like to be informed and knowledgeable about what I'm, what I'm doing, what I'm taking, stuff like that. I like to research stuff. So, yeah, I had a conversation with uh, my doctor, one about what I was being prescribed and then one about what my daughter was being prescribed at the time. And that was the last time I had a family doctor. You get about 15, 20 seconds to talk to the doctor when you first see him. And after that, you don't really... I was on the island at, uh, well, I was on Pender Island, and a friend of mine went to the mainland for a hospital visit with her. And they actually were forward thinking. Currently, I'm on the stimulant agonist program, I guess you call it, so methamphetamine is one of them. It's really been actually a lifesaver for the most part. So. I mean, if they were to make a choice to educate ourselves a little more and they were to make a choice to actually sit down and listen and, and just kind of steer away from the books for a minute, like what the book told you, pharmacists are easy to talk to, some of them. Others aren't. Some doctors, you know, off work, they're more laid back, I guess. And I've actually met a few of them. And then, yeah, I work there. That's got one mindset, right? So, so it seemed, but I think it would be, it'd be nice to see a lot sooner than later. I mean, the last four days here, I've lost five friends. Maybe some professionals admitting that they use substances as well and being level one-on-one -on -one with, with uh, people like you know, where they're at kind of deal. That'd be the easiest way. I mean, everybody smokes it. Government taste it is 80 some percent of the world population is addicted to something just because it's a substance in some cases. And the society looks down on us. Well, nobody looks down on the person that, you know, uh, is addicted to coffee or is addicted to cigarettes or something like that, right? when that's going to be just as detrimental to their life. Just see it all in the same light. It is what it is. Yeah, look at marijuana. Recovery is not a cookie cutter way to do things. Everybody's addictions look different. Everybody's recovery looks different. I mean, what's like they say in the programs, what's, you know, and I guarantee it, what's worked for, what's almost killed me has definitely killed a few people. And vice versa, what's happened to them is, is probably almost put me down to, you know, so it's, but meeting them where they're at, no matter what. I mean, look at some of the mental health uh, workers up here too in the North. Um, 
they go out and they they see somebody that's combative. They call them combatives. Really, that guy's having a bad day, and he's expressing it a little differently. Or that woman, you know, like, hey, have have a smoke. What's up? You know, it's not that hard. You know, it doesn't matter if they're ten feet tall or you're ten feet tall. You know what I mean? Agitation and aggression is going to be met with more aggression. Most of it's just building community. Exhausting is an understatement, um, but it's it's. I'm richer than I ever was. I get more family time, good time with my kid, my friend, and then just doing the advocacy and, and talking to do a town. I mean, Crown Council's come to me to build a uh, diversion program for people who use substances. You know, referrals to other places, services that for people that need help or myself that needed help. You know, it's come a lot easier now. So yeah, it's definitely it's starting to look up. It's, not quite there yet, but it's it's working there. It looks really good today, actually, for me. It's hard to describe it compared to what it was before, like incarceration and, and the institutionalization, even in the camps, the system working up here. I mean, it's still institutionalization, essentially. Um, they're, they're formed, fitted to make you, put for you to work is, is what the camps are. The balance, like the real balance I have today is that I just, getting doing what I want to do instead of um, what I uh, not what I have to do but uh, what others expect We've heard from some important voices today on care provision for people who use multiple drugs. Lindsay, what are some of the clinical pearls that stand out for you? I learned a lot from our guests today. Here are some pearls for us to think about as care providers. With the illicit drug supply becoming increasingly toxic, it's important to get a full history of all substances being used and provide education on how to use safely and prevent overdose including for substances like stimulants, where the supply is increasingly contaminated with benzos and fentanyl. Being aware of drug testing facilities and safe consumption sites in your community of practice is an essential part of providing education and promoting safety for the people we care for. Be aware of the trauma and mistrust experienced by people in the medical system. Take time and listen patiently and with sensitivity to somebody's history and experience with the health system in order to understand where they are coming from and how you can best provide support and improve trust. Support patients to engage with grassroots community and cultural organizations to help best meet their needs. For patients with more than one substance use disorder, these should be treated concurrently when possible. Equitable treatment should be offered for all substance use. Fostering a trusting relationship with your patients and having an honest, non-judgmental conversation about substance use and patient goals is key for an effective treating relationship. Bear in mind the interaction between substance use and sex and gender. 
Be aware of differences in stigma and the impact on your patients. Using the principles of motivational interviewing, non-judgmentally engage with your patients about sources of substances, coercion, and context of use. A patient-centered approach is essential. Whichever treatment option works best for that person should be chosen along with the appropriate education. I always have an open conversation with patients about safety concerns and risks with certain substances and treatment and support them in their decision which best meets their needs. The illicit toxic drug supply will put somebody at far greater risk of harm, and it's our responsibility as care providers to help people reduce the risk of harm and death. Thank you so much to all of our guests today, Sean and Dr. Lorraine Graves. Lindsay, it was a pleasure to co-host this episode with you. Likewise, David. And to our listeners, you can find links to the studies we mentioned during the show in our show notes. You can also help us to create the best possible podcast by filling out the short survey link in the show notes. To learn more about the BC Echo on Substance Use, visit bcechoonsubstanceuse.ca. This program was made possible through a financial contribution from Health Canada and Doctors of BC. The views expressed do not necessarily represent the views of these organizations. This has been a production of the BC Centre on Substance Use with the support of Cited Media. I'm Dr. Lindsay Mackay. And I'm David Ball. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode of Addiction Practice Pod, coming soon.